This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. These are ideas that aren't touched upon in headline culture and most media outlets. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased, but we do need your support. So leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In today's conversation, we spoke with Ms. Megan Parks, who is an entrepreneur focused on soil health, regenerative agriculture, and climate change. She co-founded Grassroots Carbon, and prior to this, she worked for nearly two decades as an environmental leader in the energy industry and founded and led an environmental consulting firm. Today, we chat with Megan about holistic management, what it means, and how meat can be raised in a more regenerative way that not only doesn't harm the planet, but could also help make the soil healthier. She explains why not all livestock is raised this way. In fact, it's estimated that less than 2% of ranchers use regenerative management. We discuss all the hurdles that ranchers face into making this transition. She explains why biodiversity is so important. She also talks about how she is partners with the communities, not ever being the one to tell people what to do, but to be in partnership and relationship with them. Regenerative management can help cultivate land because much of the U.S. always had grazers on. She explains a renewable and regenerative way to raise meat. She also talks about how this type of management can also reduce some of our meat consumption. Megan also touches upon whether this type of management is scalable or not. Meat has always been and continues to be a very highly talked about topic. There's a lot of complexities in this topic, and we hope to explore some of the nuance in this conversation. There's a lot of things we still don't know the answer to, like how to make regeneratively raised meat more accessible and affordable to people with a lower income. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. We actually just started talking and you were saying some great things, so how to press record. Um, but I would love to just start out with uh, your story. So you said that you were an engineer, but what brought you into the line of work you're doing today? And can you explain to our listeners what kind of work that is? Sure. I'm really happy to be here, Amanda. Well, I sometimes I think of myself as a recovering engineer. Um, that was my education training. And um, like many people who study engineering and go to college in Houston, Texas, you find yourself working in the oil and gas industry. Um, I spent a long time working for a big energy company, and I really wanted to work on environmental issues. I figured that out right away because I'm just a nature lover at heart. And so I, I finagled my way into that in my career in this global energy company. And I even had a job where I worked with a um, very interesting job working with international conservation organizations, some of the world's largest international conservation NGOs. And I really thought that that was my dream job because I had thought about quitting. In fact, I tried to quit and go work for an international NGO, but for various reasons, I needed to stay in Houston for my family. And so obviously it's not exactly the hotbed of global NGOs here in Houston. So, um, but I kind of, I got burnt out on that a little bit. I really wanted to work on what I, what spoke to me as the root causes of environmental issues, because what we were calling environmental work was really at the end 
of a one-way linear process of digging up resources, so to speak, you know, processing them for human needs with humans always at the center and then creating a bunch of waste and harm on the end. And so the environmental professionals are figuring out on the end of that cycle, what to do with that stuff, but it wasn't feeding my soul, I guess you would say. And so, um, when I became a mom, it kind of all came to a head and I felt like, man, I, I, you know, I'd gotten into senior leadership and from, from there on out, your career is really, um, you know, they, they help you decide really, they decide for you, where you're going to go and which piece of the business are you going to manage? And I realized that I didn't think that that was for me. And so I left, uh, a very secure, stable, lucrative, and in many ways, exciting career in the middle in my thirties with no plan, which is not something that an engineer like me usually does. Um, and I ended up starting an environmental consulting company so that I could go meet interesting people and try to work with people who I admired and wanted to be like without really knowing where it would end up. And through that, I found my way into the realm of regenerative agriculture. And the more I learned about it, the more I thought, aha, now here's something that kind of gets closer to some of what I think are the root causes of our environmental and ecological predicament. Because, um, and so I started learning about farmers and ranchers who are trying to farm in a way that works together with nature instead of fighting and trying to dominate and control nature. And uh, I got very interested in that. I, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and meet a couple of people who were working on these issues um, and focusing on their um, farmer, farmers and ranchers' ability to, uh, to do things that restore soil health and bring different kinds of ecosystems back into coherence. So um, yeah, I had a bunch of serendipities happen and that's how I ended up co-founding a company called Soil Value Exchange a few years ago with a partner. And then um, we were really wanting to work with uh, farmers and ranchers that do regenerative grazing on grasslands. Um, and we ended up merging with another company earlier this year um, called Pasture Map that has a grazing management software platform that people that do different kinds of managed grazing practices use to manage their herds. And so we rebranded our company and now we are called Grassroots Carbon. And here we are. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So I would love to start, we'll, we'll definitely get into specifically like what your company does, but I would love to just start off with some basics on regenerative agriculture. Um, we've definitely talked about it here on the podcast before. Uh, Daniel and I are actually working on some regenerative agriculture policies uh, at the national level, uh, specifically with Rodale though. And I think they focus less on the, uh, the grazing and, and um, animal and livestock as much as they do with like uh, like crops. Uh, so can you explain a little bit to us, like what does regenerative agriculture mean to you? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, and I think that I always have to introduce some humility when I answer this question, because I am not a farmer or a rancher. I'm several generations off the farm. 
Um, so everything that I'm learning, and I'm still very much in beginner's mind on this, is from talking with actual land managers and practitioners about their approaches and what they do. And I think the word regenerative is at risk of being, I don't know, co-opted into the juggernaut somehow uh, and, and, and rebranded into a tool of greenwashing. However, that said, it's a blanket term that I use to refer to um, agriculture practices that seek to partner with nature and learn from her rather than dominating and controlling her. And at Grassroots, we are 100% focused on working with people who do grazing. And there's a reason for that. So I know less about you know, techniques in the row crop ag space. And I, so I really don't speak to those. Um, and I'm really drinking from the fire hose of learning about grazing. And so the, um, the thing about people who are grazing on rangelands uh, or, you know, what, what were grasslands is that grasslands are ecosystems that co-evolved with grazing mammals that would wander across them and graze them very intensively and then leave, right? Chased by fire or predators. So the land would rest for a long time. And so those ecosystems co-evolved, right? The, the animals and the plants and the soil microbes, like it, it's a system. And, and those are the conditions more or less under which those ecosystems thrive. And so people who are doing an ag operation with grazers can mimic those conditions and kind of recreate in a more managed way the condition of a wandering herd that comes in, grazes something intensively, and then moves off. And that piece of land rests for a while, um, which stimulates all the plants to come back in a certain way and a, a greater diversity of the native grassland plants to come back. And so like the way people are doing that is with, uh, typically with portable electric fencing and subdividing a larger piece into multiple paddocks. And um, the it's more a technique. I don't think of regenerative grazing as a set of practices. I think we need to get out of that mindset and into a mindset of um, an approach. So sometimes you'll hear regenerative grazing called holistic management. There's a group called the Savory Institute and they teach holistic management. They do not call it, these are the techniques for regenerative grazing. They call it holistic management and it addresses the mindset that one cultivates in order to um, optimize the conditions on their particular property. And I'm not an expert in holistic management. I do not teach it. We partner, we like to partner with others who, who do this, um, but everything that I know about it so far would indicate that it's, you know, it's very bespoke to the conditions that you're dealing with, right? Your climate, your particular situation as a land manager, even like what your family or your financial goals are for your operation, what you have experience with. So there's not a cookbook cookie cutter recipe that says, well, you have to have this many paddocks. They have to be this size. You have to keep the animals on them for this long, right? Because living systems don't lend themselves to one set of rules that applies to everyone equally because every piece of land is slightly different. So an analogy I use a lot is with the human body. Amanda and Megan, we both have bodies. We're both human beings. We both need to eat food, but the exact correct diet for you today and for me today are probably slightly different. 
because you might have certain, uh, you know, I might have a chronic condition I'm trying to manage, or I might have a certain blood type, or I might be in a certain context where I'm breathing in a certain set of pollutants. So you can't just say, well, if everyone just ate these 12 things, we would all be in perfect health because it just doesn't work that way. There's a certain amount of secret sauce, right? Um, the gut microbiome in you is not exactly the same as the gut microbiome in me. And what's going to enable my microbiome to thrive might not be exactly the same as for you. The same, that same kind of approach applies to the land because it also is alive. And so there are some governing principles that make sense, simple, similar to how there are dietary principles that make sense, but you can't, um, control it with the recipe down to the very tiniest detail. So regenerative grazing is about the overarching thought pathway more so than numbers of how many, you know, how many days of rest. Although there are some rules of thumb that you can use as a starting point. I really like that analogy. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. I was talking to Professor Salman on one of our podcasts recently, and he's an ethnobotanist uh, and he's indigenous. And he was talking about the fact that regenerative agriculture is a little bit co-opted because it's very much just land-based indigenous wisdom that again, we are using nowadays and calling it regenerative agriculture, because exactly like what you were saying, it's very dependent on where you live and what, what climate you're in. Um, and that's like indigenous land-based wisdom that we're bringing back again. Um, so I, I think that, I mean, what you said is exactly true. And I always try to keep that in the back of my mind. Like if, if I want to maybe like start a farm or grazing that we, we can also look to like the indigenous people around us and um, see what, see what their wisdom is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, <laughs> I'm very curious about indigenous, indigenous ways of land management. And um, I think our culture has a lot to learn from that. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we're grassroots carbon is mainly right now we're focused on working in the United States because that's where we're based. And there's a ton of grasslands here. We're using, I think, about 650 million acres of land in the U.S. Wow. for grazing right now. And wow. so if you just changed how those herds were managed, and even on a tiny fraction of that, you could make a huge difference into the ecosystem health. And I think the other thing to say is that properly done in the long run, um, holistic management or regenerative grazing techniques end up being more profitable for the land manager in the long run, because the land can support a lot more animals. So you can actually have a lot more to sell. Um, mm. But anyway, I don't want to go too far into the whole colonialism and all that stuff. Um, these, these techniques are not the norm in American ag at all. We estimate that less than 5% of land managers are using these techniques um, and this way of thinking. And so it might even be less than 2%. We don't have like a scientific study on this. It's totally not the norm. And, um, you know, so we have to be very humble because the last thing any farmer or rancher needs is some yoo-hoo from Houston in an office somewhere <laughs> coming around and tell, oh, I know better, right? <laughs> no way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's really about honoring people that work the land. That is a very hard job, very yeah. hard, very risky, many things beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I believe in meeting people where they're at mm-hmm. and being respectful. That's what we're really about. We work with land managers, some of whom already do these techniques and, you know, their neighbor might right next door might be looking across the fence line and thinking that they're kind of crazy. Um, there's some really good movies, actually. There's some really good short films you can watch. There's um, Peter Bick at Arizona State University has made a bunch of like 12 to 15 minute films. Um, you can find them at, I think it's carboncowboys.org, Soil Carbon Cowboys. And he has filmed a bunch of ranchers who do these kind of practices in all kinds of different U.S. states. And it's just them talking about what they're doing and about how they came to it. And in some cases about how their whole family thought they were crazy or they came to it out of financial desperation in many cases. Um, you know, but I think once people start, they don't tend to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the part I'm the most curious about because I think in some way it changes. You can listen to them talk about how it has changed their thinking and how they see themselves and how they see the land. And that's one of the most exciting and also the most difficult parts. Yes, absolutely. And and so you were saying that there's like less than 5% of land you think that is managed this way. Something that we were talking to some of the farmers about at uh, Rodale as well is what do you think the hurdles are for why? Why isn't this a more widespread practice? Because like you were saying, once they transition to regenerative practices, um, they never go back. So so what's the biggest hurdle to like make this a, a wider spread movement? I'd say there's two big ones. And the first probably dwarfs the second. And the first is psychological. Um, Because it's not the norm, um, just our natural uh, disinclination to change is in the way, Um, a certain amount of pride. I think sometimes this happens just as sort of like a human thing, right? Um, well, if I am going to change into a completely different approach to one aspect of my life, one as big as my livelihood, I think it can often feel like um, it's accompanied with, well, are you, are you saying that I've been doing it wrong, you know, or some, right? Um, so I think that there's a resistance to change that comes, even if you were to hear about these, that comes from just a normal, ordinary human place that we all have a certain amount of pride. Um, maybe you're, you're farming in the same way that your father and your grandfather and your great grandfather farmed. And so, you know, it can't come across as, oh, well, they were wrong. It's just not about that. It has to be uh, moving forward and an honoring. So I think psychological and cha- just plain old human change management is absolutely the number one barrier. Yeah. And you were also saying how like farmers, I mean, this is such a hard job that ranchers don't really want to be told what to do from like an outside perspective. And oh no, so- no, 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 no. And that's completely inappropriate. Mind <laughs> yeah. you. I think I, I, it, it would be totally inappropriate to approach this line of work from a point of, Oh, I know better yes. me the outsider. <laughs> what do I know? I don't know anything. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, so. I, I see us and I see our company really as a supportive resource 
and um, always sitting in a, an open-minded state of listening, um, you know, because we're really here to serve. We're not here to um, manage people. We're here to serve landowners, to help them get really rewarded for what they're doing and for the risks that they're taking. And so the second big barrier beyond the psychological is financial. So if a person were to decide, okay, I have a conventionally managed ranch today, I don't know, maybe it's a thousand acres and I just have, a, you know, herds of, let's say it's cattle uh, at a certain stocking rate. And, you know, most people, the animals just free wander wherever uh, to an extent, Depend it, totally dependent. It's really hard to talk about a generic ranch because there's really no such thing. But anyway, <laughs> continuing on, um, you know, and if you wanted to move in the direction of adaptive multi-paddock grazing or a holistic management approach, oftentimes you'll have to invest in water systems because the herd needs to be able to drink water. And if they're penned in one smaller paddock, they still need to be able to drink. Right. And so some people will invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in water piping systems, right? With a big tank and pipes that'll extend so that they have water accessible. Other people do it other ways. Some people have rigged up mobile water sources, like on the back of a, a truck, um, but it's expensive. And then you need the electric fencing, and you probably need to invest in some education for yourself and your staff, right? And maybe get somebody out to evaluate your unique situation who appear who has done this or is doing this in your area. And so all that stuff can cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars really even to transition. And so that's the second, if you get over the psychological barrier, you then have this huge, potentially huge financial risk that is needed, right? And it's sort of like, if you have no experience with this, that alone could scare you away for a lifetime, right? Because you might not have the capacity to absorb a big error. If I do this and it doesn't work and then I'm in debt, right? You can, I mean, I can just, I, I think that those two together make it keep, keep things the way they are. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I really appreciate like your perspective of meeting people where they're at and really just listening and being there to like support people instead of obviously like telling people what to do. And I think that as more and more ranchers start to use these practices, then you can see your peers using it and you're like, okay, it's, it's not as hard to transition and it's becoming more of a norm now. So there'll be a, a snowball effect, hopefully. <laughs> um, and one of the, one of the key things about regenerative uh, agriculture is soil health. Um, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but why is soil health so important? Well, in a nutshell, soil is the foundation of terrestrial life. Um, it's literally the foundation because we're all standing on it if you're treading on the earth. Um, but it's the foundation of a healthy ecosystem, really a healthy terrestrial ecosystem. And uh, I don't think that it is maybe as well studied as other aspects of terrestrial ecosystems. Um, soil science is changing pretty fast. And um, I often like to think about the mirror of the soil biome and like the biome in us. So um, in terms of the research on how soils cycle carbon through them, one of the interesting things I learned when I started to get involved in this kind of work um, 
was that, you know, the mechanism for sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a cycle, right? The earth's carbon cycle. So there's a respiration almost of the land. And if you put a tower out there, you can actually measure the CO2 levels, you know, like breathing. It's like, it's breathing. The land is breathing. And so what's happening is in photo, in photosynthesis, right? Um, the plants are capturing CO2, part of, part of the CO2, it gets transformed into sugars and part of it goes into making plant biomass for the leaves and the stems and the roots. And then part of those sugars are transferred though, through the roots, through these root exudates to feed the soil microbes. And so the more different kinds of plants you have, the more different varieties of those root exudates, the more diversity above ground you have also means you have more diversity below ground. You have a more diverse microbiome in your soil. And those are of course, more resilient and healthier. Um, you know, nature doesn't do monocultures. It doesn't do just one thing. Uh, that's us thinking we know better. And so when you transition to, um, you know, regenerative grazing practices and you'll start, they start to see some of the latent seed bank is still there and you start to get more, uh, a greater diversity of plants coming back. And that is a reflection of the greater diversity beneath the surface. And then of course you start to see that greater diversity on top, right? Because more different kinds of plants is more different kinds of insects. Then you get more different kinds of birds it's all, it kind of all goes together. And so the soil is actually really exciting. I think it's really exciting. My husband makes fun of me because I get excited about compost and stuff, but I just can't help but think that if people just stood still and had the occasion to, to know more about this, then they would be excited too, because it's alive. It's not just a bunch of dirt. It's alive. Yeah. And it's like what you were saying before too, everything is so interconnected. Like everything starts with the soil. It grows our food. Um, it provides, it provides everything. Like what you were saying, we stand it on it. It's the foundation of life. Um, but I think that it's so overlooked because it's, I, we take it so much for granted. Yeah. It's not, um, I guess to one, to one way of thinking, it's not spectacular. You it's not like a mountain you can gaze at or a rainforest. The soil is sort of down there quietly doing its thing beneath the surface. Um, but I just think, you know, it's because people haven't been shown it in the right way. Yeah. And, and the way that we've been managing soil, um, or now has become dirt. And that's essentially what led to like the dust bowl a while ago, and it's starting to degrade and we're losing a lot of a lot of this dirt because of runoff and, and soil instead can like capture the water. And, um, and so like re regenerating the soil is super important for just like the health of our agriculture and the future of our, our ability to like grow and produce food. Absolutely. It is. Um, I don't know a single person who doesn't eat Often, <laughs> oftentimes multiple times per day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I hear a lot of stuff in the news about us, going to Mars and I don't know, maybe we think we'll colonize Mars or something, but, um, I haven't yet heard how we'll feed ourselves when we're on Mars. I'm on team earth. And I think that, um, it's exciting what we're capable of, but we're capable of, of, I think, relearning again, <laughs> what we seem to have forgotten in the dominant culture, which is, um, really a reverence for, 
that which sustains us. And the soil is a big part of that. Absolutely. I am also team earth. (laughs) And so something that I wanted to touch on is there's a lot of like controversy about eating meat. I I don't know. Have you ever like listened to or read uh, Diana Rogers stuff like sacred cow? I, well, I haven't read her book, um, but I've been on her podcast. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's read a lot of her articles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I would just love to talk about uh, meat and uh, is it healthy to eat? Is it good for the environment? We can start with just the health and then we can probably move into the environment. Hmm. I would assert that the question is meat healthy to eat is the wrong question. Um, I think that some of the material that I read about this, and there's lots of arguing. Um, if you step back from it, there would actually be quite a bit of agreement. I think what people who, um, for example, I, I've got some friends who are vegan. They are ethical vegans because, and rightfully so, because they take issue with the horrors of our industrial agriculture system. And I think what a lot of the eat no meat or meat is bad. A lot of that is coming from a place of being horrified, understandably horrified at what large scale mechanized industrial agriculture is doing Mm -hmm. um, to the natural world and to animals. Um, And that said, I also think it's important to, you know, not to engage in these blame games about who's to blame. Um, we are all at this point, um, you know, I was born in the seventies and I was born into a system that had already got quite a bit of momentum behind it. Right. Industrial ag looking at you, you look like you were born after the seventies. So you, we are essentially all at this point born into a system and we're inheriting it and it is flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so farmers, and ranchers who are engaged in this system, you know, many of the, like most cows, for example, are grazing on grass for the vast majority of their life. And then they're sent to a feedlot for the very end of their life. And they become part of this system. And I don't think it's right to place blame on the shoulders of the individual farmer who is also born into this, you know, (laughs) juggernaut and is doing the best that he or she can. That said, I think that it's very noble. The, my friends who are ethical vegans are making a huge sacrifice. It is not easy to try to stick to your own ethical principles in a food culture that has got issues. Mm -hmm. And so they are making a statement with every meal that they're saying no to a certain thing and yes to something else. And that said, there's also, you know, like um, the problems of industrial agriculture are not limited to animal agriculture. And there's a lot of foodstuffs that might be fit the vegan checkbox, but are also engaged in these industrial processes that are harmful. I don't think you're, I think the quest for perfection um, is a mistake. Uh, I think that we're kind of all in this together. Um, and so I, I don't agree with demonizing any one food or any one dietary choice. I think we have to remember that we're all human and we're all eaters. And we, then we start from there. 
um, because of the obstacles that I've mentioned, which are not insignificant to any garden variety U.S. rancher um, changing over to adaptive multi-paddock grazing or holistic management, those are not insignificant obstacles. Um, and those of us who have not walked in the shoes of someone trying to do that, um, I think a little more humility is in order. Um, I think that certain bodies, again, I'm not a nutritionist, but just in personal experimentation with my own health and the health of other family members, many of whom have chronic disease in my family, on one side of the family, literally every single adult has type two diabetes. And some of my family members have managed it for decades. And some of them do much better on a high protein diet. And if you do not eat meat, it's very, very difficult, you know, for some people like that to manage their blood sugar. Um, I remember when my, my mom, um, got diagnosed with diabetes a couple decades ago. And the first thing her physician advised her was to go on a low carbohydrate, higher protein diet for a while to see if they could delay needing to take meds. And so I think that it would be very difficult to impose, you know, your, your personal ethics on each other when we don't know all there is to know, um, about what their life is like. And, uh, you know, everyone's different. Some people might thrive on a, on a totally vegan diet. Absolutely. I, I think I think that to some extent, our bodies are still kind of a mystery to us. I don't know. I feel like I, I need to interview you now as a medical student, <laughs> because I'm very curious about what is known and not known about human nutrition. And uh, I think that as long as you stay reasonably humble, you can't go wrong because I just don't, it, I would be shocked if there was a one size fits all dietary approach that if we all just followed it, we would all be fine. And the system will resolve. I just don't think that life is that simple. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with that. Um, and this is, this is something that I love about podcasting and kind of why we rebranded pretty recently to calling our podcast, the nuance, because there is so much more to the conversation than what you were saying, like a binary one size fits all. Um, and there's just so much argument and debate on what diet is perfect. And I do also very much respect people who are ethical vegans because they are like what you were saying with every bite, trying to make a difference, um, in the environment and in the climate. But then there's some nuance to the conversation where if you are, um, doing the holistic grazing and doing regenerative agriculture practices, it can actually be like more beneficial for the earth. So if you're eating the the meat from those ranchers, you're actually like helping to support the regeneration of the soil and yes. helping to support um, the, the environmental impacts or oh, yes. reducing grasslands need grazers that mm -hmm. often gets overlooked in the meat is bad discussion is that grassland ecosystems need grazing animals on them. And since we already are using so many of what would have been the native prairie, for grazing, um, I, I, what is the proposal? Is the proposal to somehow remove all of those animals? It's certainly better to use grasslands for grazing than it is to cut down forest and use that land for grazing. 
Um, it's incredibly complicated with all these global supply chains. I just don't think there's any simple answer and I can't profess to understanding our global food supply chains well enough. You know, there's no way I'm giving an answer here today, but what I, what I will say is I don't see any downside to trying to promote more farmers and ranchers to come into the regenerative grazing party, right? If you are working on a piece of land that is inappropriate for row crop, it, it was native grassland before, um, you can recreate to the largest degree possible within the scope of what your goals are, that kind of healthy ecosystem on your land. I don't see any downside to that. And yes, they are selling animals for food at the end of that. And I, I, that has to be okay. It has to be okay. As long as people are going to eat meat somewhere, that has to be okay. Yeah. And I think I heard on one of um, Diana Rogers podcasts too, that you can use grazing animals and lands that you can't necessarily um, use for like row crop agriculture, which can be another use of land. And instead of um, like saying that you're like, I don't know, deforesting or misusing the land, it could actually like help regenerate the soil there too. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what we would call range lands in the sort of semi-arid American West are lands that if you tried to farm them would be not as productive. Mm -hmm. And and also back to your point about nutrition and one size fits all, I completely agree with you. There isn't. Um, first of all, medical school doesn't really talk about nutrition that much, but in my own research and then doing an elective with the teaching kitchen at Tulane, um, which is run by nutritionists and slash dietitians, they're both um, there. And this is the part of the problem with the studies as well, is it's really hard to do nutrition studies because if you change one factor in a diet, then something else is changing. So you can't really do like a, like a control and a, and a not control. But uh, a lot of studies have been done on the Mediterranean diet. Um, and I think that isn't necessarily like the one size fits all that we should all do because that's just because we're, that's where the studies were done was in the Mediterranean versus like my ancestors are more from like Asia and the Pacific Island area. And my diet should probably be a little bit different than someone from the Mediterranean, just because your DNA and genes are used to you being in that location. Like you were saying, every climate is different. And so your body should be treated differently, just as like your land should be treated differently based off of like where you're living and what grows around you. So yes, we all have different microbiomes, different genes that work well with like metabolizing different things. So it isn't a one size fits all approach. Yeah. I mean, I think Diana actually points this out. Another fault in the meat is bad always forever you know, you should never kill an animal anywhere forever. No human should consume another animal. Like all that's, I find a certain kind of arrogance. I don't think it's intended, but I think that, you know, there are actually cultures where they primarily eat just meat. You know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, and again, I'm not an anthropologist, but surely Inuit kind of people eating primarily, living on, you know, things out of the sea where you, it's frozen all the time. You're not going to be growing a lot of vegetables to eat. So I think that it can come across as quite arrogant in certain contexts to demand, you know, compliance or, or to assert that you have all the answers for what everyone should be doing everywhere. You get in trouble when you try to generally apply yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're taking away like people's cultural, like food is a huge part of people's culture. 
Um, and so like when you try to get people on certain diets and then they like stop having meals with their families or um, it's like hard for them to implement within their life, I think that's, um, it's kind of isolating too. I mean, I think, honestly, I think most of the good faith um, eat less meat arguments that I am exposed to are really just around participate less in destructive industrial ag. And yes. because most meat that is sold is probably touching um, a feedlot. And because like, let's say us in the US, we eat a lot more meat per capita than in other certain places. It is probably true that you can, you know, lessen your footprint in terms of ecology by eating less industrial raised meat. Yes, I, I think they're right about that. Um, how can we tell if it's industrially raised meat and how can we tell if it's regenerative? Yeah, I'm going to get out of my depth real fast on this one. I don't think that the labeling standards are exactly up to snuff in on meat. Um, if I go to my local grocery store here in Texas, um, I can buy a package of ground beef or ground bison that is labeled grass fed. But I don't, I still don't know. And most of that, by the way, at least at my grocery store, if you look on the back and it says where the cows were raised, uh, it's coming from South America. <clears throat> and I, I can't guarantee, I don't have a, a great deal of confidence that that meat was actually grass finished and wasn't actually sent to a feedlot because I don't think the labeling standards are there. I'm not the right person to ask about these things. There is a lot of experimentation. There is a regenerative organic labeling, a regenerative organic alliance. You should try to have some of them on your podcast. Um, the Savory Institute that I mentioned before, they have an ecological outcome verification certification and label that producers can get on their product. And this is really about ecological health and people that are doing the kind of what I would call regenerative ag. It's really about the approach. Um, but I think that for meat, labeling is a total hodgepodge and it's not really helping the consumers right now because there's not one standard that if you get it, you can guarantee right? Like if I go to a Whole Foods grocery store, they've got their own uh, animal welfare rating that they've applied. And I don't think they would need that if the labeling was up to snuff. Yeah. 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 I think it's really confusing. And that's something that like with this whole meat, no meat debate is, is tough because if you're trying to say, okay, well, I eat meat, but only if it's raised ethically, it's really hard to find in grocery stores and it's really confusing and it's yep. put on the consumer and that's really tough. Yes, it is. And so the idea that it would scale to be the majority of people eating that way seems like that's just not going to happen. The, the best thing you can do if you're truly committed is buy your meat from the actual farmer who raised it. And then you can actually know. So if you were to, let's say, do a new year's resolution that for one year, you were only going to consume meat that you knew the source of, you'd find if you're living in a city, there's probably a way that you can do that. And it will probably be much more expensive and you will eat less of it. And that right there has really improved probably the health profile of the meat you're eating. And also, um, you know, your support of your local food system, because there's a lot more to it than just, um, you know, there's a, there is support needed throughout the food value chain. At Grassroots, we're just working using a carbon credit incentive 
to try to provide carbon finance as a lever for change for people. But I'm excited that as we grow, we'll get more into the business of partnering with other organizations to help do transition financing to help with that second barrier that I was talking about, which is so if people need, they, they're open-minded enough and willing to shift, but what is stopping them is the financial that we could actually be part of diffusing the cost or the risk for the producer. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners and to me a bit, <laughs> what is a carbon credit? What is a carbon credit? Um, a carbon credit is almost like an esoteric item that represents one ton of atmospheric CO2 sequestered and stored in our case in healthy soils. Almost to talk about it as storage is a little misleading in the sense that natural systems, of course, have a respiration to them. But essentially, we're saying we are guaranteeing that there is one less ton in the atmosphere. It's in the soil system. So we're actually tilting the dynamic equilibrium in favor of sequestration instead of release, right? So more going in than is coming out. Very well explained. And how do you measure that? Well, another great question. The, the credits that we sell um, require soil measurements. So there's been some controversy in land-based carbon credits. Um, there's a lot more forestry credits out there than there are soil credits um, for various reasons. Um, and one of the reasons is it's a lot easier to measure the size of a tree trunk than it is to measure the amount of carbon stocks in a soil because you can't see it. Um, and because you're measuring over a large aerial extent potentially and at different depths and because soil carbon dynamics are complex, um, it's kind of actually analogous to what we used to do in the oil and gas industry, which is, you know, you use statistics and you, you use what you know about the soils and the vegetation and the slope and the different um, physical properties to set how many samples you need to take um, in order to be within a certain range of error on your estimate of what the soil carbon stocks are. So we go out and measure, and then we come back in about five years and measure at those same sample points again. And then what we are selling is the difference in the soil organic carbon stock, right? So if you have a greater carbon stock five years later, then you have something to sell. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. So I also want to talk about the scalability of this because we are also talking about like, it might not seem like we can make everyone eat regenerative organic meat <laughs> or, or like encourage it. Uh, but is it scalable to continue eating meat um, and only eat regenerative organic or regeneratively raised meat uh, in the long run, if more and more people transition? Like, is there enough land to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything's possible in the long run. Um, I am, it doesn't mean it'll be easy. And to think that everyone can have their cheap McDonald's burger and that the price won't change and no other change in your life. And you just kind of sit there and wait and be along for the ride. I think that that's probably a little unreasonable. Um, 
but I am very encouraged about others that are working at all the different points in the value chain to try to enable something like this to happen because there's a lot of stuff about how our food distribution systems work. There's a lot of centralization and to really get to a less fragile and a healthier food system, I think we have to um, move away from some of the big centralization. And it may mean paying more in the long run for food, which is not a popular thing to say. But if I had to, but you know, if the food is also more nourishing, um, it's probably worth it. Um, yeah, and you may end up spending about the same because you won't crave as much because you're actually eating nutrient dense food. Yeah, I think though that there's an equity discussion and um, socioeconomic class discussion that that probably needs to get had, and that might be an interesting thing to explore in your podcast. But in a nutshell, eventually there's no land shortage. So I mentioned how how many million hundreds of millions of acres we're already using in the U.S. for this stuff. Um, there's no reason why we couldn't um, support land managers. Even a tiny fraction of people switching would make a huge difference, certainly to those individual producers, but also to the amount of um, healthy food putting into the supply chain. But uh, to remove all of those pounds of meat from industrial, you know, grain fed finishing into something else requires a lot of other access points that we're not addressing. So grassroots carbon, we can't, we're not trying to solve every issue. All we're trying to do is experiment with, can we use carbon finance as like a, not a stick, but a carrot, right? Like mm -hmm. a, uh, an incentive to people that they could be getting a very significant annual carbon payment but only to the extent that they actually improve the organic carbon stocks, which are a pretty good proxy for overall soil health. It's not perfect. Um, I'm actually pretty hopeful that we will partner with others in the long run who are stacking the other ecosystem benefits on top of that. There's some really exciting stuff going on. And so I would like to use these ecosystem services payments as a way to incentivize people that might otherwise be skeptical. Everyone understands the dollar. Not everyone is a systems thinker, but everyone understands money. <laughs> and so that's the experiment that we're running. And we're starting with carbon since there's a market for it now, but there's no reason why we couldn't transition a very large number. You know, We didn't start this company to just work on a couple of pilot projects over the course of the next couple of decades, right? We're not gonna wait until there's perfect information or enough peer reviewed research. It, it, the same problems that plague nutrition research also plague grazing research and soil, um, you know, it's very difficult to study living systems because they don't lend themselves to isolation of a single variable. Um, so Absolutely. anyway, bearing that in mind, I, I don't see I, there, it's not easy, but there's no reason why we can't scale this. And we're completely determined to find a way to, to scale voluntary carbon credits on grazing lands because there's only ever been I think one single project anywhere in the world that has gotten to the point of credit issuance. Um, and so carbon markets right now are not acting as an incentive for rancher transition. And we are trying to change that. Well, thank you. I, I really like the work that you're doing and I really appreciate what you are doing because I think that it's super important. 
Um, and then I know that we only have a few minutes left, but I do, you did touch on equity and socioeconomic uh, hurdles to getting this kind of meat. Where do you see this going in the future? How can we make that kind of healthy meat more accessible to people from lower socioeconomic uh, status? Wow, if only I had an answer to that question. I mean, I think there's probably an aspect of the food desert. I think there's probably an aspect that where the government could actually get involved. I know that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm working on something that's trying to use the private sector to work on problems, not the government, but, um, you know, an ethic of care for our fellow humans. Um, partially that is what our government is supposed to be there to help us maintain. Um, you know, I think it's a really, really tough problem. That said, even some of the big food companies are starting to dip their toe into the realm of regenerative meat. Like for example, there's a very large grazing study that is studying the kinds of practices that I've been talking about. And it's funded in part by the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, but it's also funded in part by McDonald's who is a huge purchaser of beef. And so think what you will about companies like McDonald's, but having worked for a very large and sometimes hated company in the past, I can tell you that um, that too is more complicated because some of the big food companies are actively trying to learn about regenerative ag. And I think it's up to the small and nimble and to the consumers to keep them uh, accountable. I think it can be done. You know, What if you could offer an affordable, I don't think that offering an affordable, regeneratively raised hamburger at McDonald's is necessarily <laughs> going to help a lot of low-income people. Probably what would be better would be to have also uh, food in their grocery store, fresh food, nutrient-dense food that is cost-comparable with a McDonald's meal, right? Without all the additives. Um, how to do that is beyond Megan Parks's ability. <laughs> And as a physician, um, you know, I think that to have more physicians with true nourishment and nutrition in front of mind would be a very good thing. I agree with that. Um, and so lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. I'm going to say the future is in the healthy soil beneath our feet. Beautiful. I love it. It sums up this conversation perfectly as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. 
If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.